from the book of Genesis, Sarah laughed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Good morning, friends. I always feel like I'm preaching in a bank robbery or something with all of you. And I will say, you know, I, I think I mentioned this last week, it was difficult to preach to an empty church over the course of the, uh, um, we had to be locked down. I, I'm not sure if it's easier then or preaching to people that I can't really read because I can't see you. But anyway, I'll do my best. So cut me some slack. Is that a deal? All right. So today we are starting our season known as the season after Pentecost. And you know, it's like anything else. There's nothing sexy to say you are something after something else. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church actually calls this season, which is the longest of the church's year, from Easter all the way to Advent, calls it ordinary time. And so, you know, we're sort of looking at this situation of Pentecost where, what are we doing? What is the point of this season in the church's life? And I'll submit to you that the season after Pentecost, which goes from now all the way to Thanksgiving, to Advent, Uh, is actually, I think, the most important season of the church's year. It's the longest, and I think in some ways even the most practical. What do you mean? Well, if you think about it, we spend most of the year in seasons that circle around an event or a theme, right? So, for example, Advent is about the second coming of Christ. Uh, Christmas is about gifts and Santa Claus. Now, it's about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. Easter is about the resurrection and then, and so forth. And so those are all good things, obviously. But now, in the season of Pentecost, we take all these theological ideas we've learned and we actually apply them to real life. And one of the ways I like to do that as a preacher, because the Bible does this, is we look at the lives of ordinary people, plain old people, like Abraham and Sarah today, We look at the lives of regular folks and see how God works on their lives, not because of some historical curiosity, but because we see in their lives our own. So this morning, we're going to kick off the season after Pentecost, right? It sounds so boring. It's going to be fun because we're going to be looking at a sermon series of people's lives, starting off with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Now, I know their names are Abram and Sarai, and their names are changed. For sake of argument, we're going to call them Abraham and Sarah. And I will say to you this morning, before we launch into these two, because we're going to spend a couple of weeks on them, that Abraham and Sarah aren't exactly the happiest, most highly functioning married couple in the world. We, we tend to look at the characters in Scripture through a lens, I think, and it's dangerous because we forget that these are actual people. And Abraham and Sarah, their lives were filled with doubt and fear and anxiety and uncertainty, kind of like your life, kind of like my life. But God uses these challenges in their lives and in ours to teach us the most important thing. You want to know the meaning of life? Here it is. You ready? Learn how to trust God, period. We're going to see this with These two, Abraham and Sarah, over the next few weeks, we're going to kick off this series with three points. First, I want to look at the faith of Abraham, right? Give you some background on him if you don't know it already. The faith faith of Abraham, the cynicism of Sarah. Boy, say that five times fast. The faith of Abraham, the cynicism of Sarah, and then finally, the last laugh. So the trust of Abraham, the cynicism of Sarah, and the last laugh. Now, You have to know, there's an old line that uh, Paul Harvey used to say, 
the rest of the story, right? Everybody's got a story. Everybody has a history. Your life is essentially the culmination of your genetics and your history, right? I just started reading this past week a fantastic biography of Ulysses S. Grant, one of my heroes. I love Ulysses Grant for lots of reasons. One thing I did not know is that Ulysses S. Grant's birth name was Hubert. And is that his... His, his uh, father, Switz, turned me on to this biography. His initials were Hubert Ulysses Grant. So all his kids, his friends, called him Hugs. So of course, he didn't like Hugs. So he went by Ulysses Grant. So the kids called him Useless Grant. See my point? How ironic, right? The point I want you to see here is everybody, whether you're Abraham and Sarah or Ulysses Grant or you, everyone's got a story, man. And the story impacts how we see the world. So Abraham, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, the, the father Abraham, the progenitor of, of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, right? The hero of the Bible. Abraham started out as a nobody, technically a wandering Aramean. What is that? That's kind of the point. Genesis 12 tells us that Abraham is kind of doing nothing, right? Minded in his own business, and God calls him. Listen to this, Genesis 12. I'm going to, I'm going to go quickly through this just for some background. God, God calls Abraham and says, Abram, uh, yeah. He says, pack your stuff, pack all your material possessions, pack up your wife, your kid, your belongings, and everything you have. Leave it all, man, because I'm going to show you something big. You're, I'm going to send you somewhere, Abraham, and I'm actually not even going to tell you where yet. And the astounding thing, you see, is that Abraham actually goes. That should sound kind of familiar to you, I hope. Because I mean, rarely, in fact, never, does God actually ever give us the whole story, right? When God calls us to something or lays something on our heart, he doesn't give us all the details. And I think the reason is, if he did, we'd blow it like they do. And I'll get to that in a second. God wants you to learn to trust him. And the only way you learn to trust him is by doing what he says and seeing if he delivers. But the thing is, God says, Abraham, pack your stuff and go. And astoundingly, listen, he does. Now, it's not pretty. The journey is not, it's certainly not a good example of how to be a father or a husband. Some really bad things happen to Abraham and Sarah. For example, as they are wandering to who knows where, they go through a place called Egypt. And Sarah, who apparently was pretty hot, right? It's a Greek word. Uh, Sarah apparently is pretty attractive. Pharaoh sees her, and he asks about this woman. Hey, who's that? And so Abraham, you know, the story full of bravery and machismo, confronts Pharaoh and says, this is what he says. You ready for this? And that's not what happens. Abraham says to his wife Sarah, and I quote Genesis 12, 13, Hey, honey, yeah? Tell him you're my sister. That it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared. So, in other words, he gives his wife away to save his own skin. It reminds me of that old Henny Youngman bit, you know? Take my wife, please. Remember that one? You heard that before, right, Greater? Okay, good. <laughs> point I want you to see here, this is actually a major point of, the, of, this, of Abraham. 
He's not exactly Prince Charming, and things do get worse. I mean, later on in Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham children, more children than the number of stars in the sky. The problem is that his wife Sarah is unable to have children, and for an ancient Near Eastern woman to not have children would be a complete blow to her social status, her, her worth to her husband. It would be devastating for a woman to not be able to have children. But God says, Abraham, you're going to have all these kids, and so what does our hero do? Well... Sarah, again, this long-suffering woman, this desperate woman says, you know, Abraham, I've got an idea, honey. <laughs> I've got this servant girl named Hagar. She's cute. Maybe you could, uh, maybe she would have a child with, maybe you could have a child with her instead. And Abraham, of course, says, oh, I couldn't possibly do that, honey. I could. No, he goes for it. He goes for it, literally. And, he, and Hagar is pregnant. And then, of course, Sarah gets jealous and upset and says, get rid of that, Hagar. And he does. I mean, the guy's a Abraham's a train wreck, friends. He's not exactly the kind of guy that you would want your boy to grow up to be like. And so after all these series of events, and it's in a pretty short amount of time, actually, life goes on happily ever after, right? No, not exactly. Truth is, and this is actually a very important pastoral point, and it leads me to my first one, it's this. Here's the question, and I hope, you're, I hope this is in your heart and your mind. It's the point of the text. Why in the world is Abraham God's chosen one? I mean, you've got to ask yourself the question, God, I mean, th is this really the best you've got? Is this the best you can do, this guy Abraham? This is the best you've got? I mean, for crying out loud, I hate to see your B team, right? The point I want you to see here is that Abraham is the guy who is, on, he is the guy who, despite the fact that he is a failure as a husband and later as a father, and, you know, is a leader in general, Abraham only has one thing going for him, friends, only one thing, and it's this. Abraham really believes. And that's my first point, the faith of Abraham. And I want you to listen to this. This is an important point. Because most people think of faith as what? What do people think when you say, I have faith in God? You know, what does that actually mean? For most people, in fact, for the majority of people, faith means what? An intellectual assent to a truth claim, I believe that God exists. I'm a believer. I don't go to church or change my life or anything, but yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, guess what, friends? I got a little secret for you. God doesn't care if you believe he exists. He doesn't care. The scripture presumes that you know it. Read Romans 1. God doesn't care a whit if you believe that he exists because everybody does in some fashion or another. James famously says, look, you, you say that you believe... <laughs> Even the demons believe and they shudder. See, the point is that the faith that God wants from you is not you believe in something as a, a truth claim, no. The, tr the faith that God cares about is that you trust him. This is an important point. This is a really important point. The Greek word for faith is, is the word pestuo, and it means trust. It doesn't mean that you believe God exists. It means that you trust him. And what makes Abraham righteous, according to Paul, later on again in Romans, is that Abraham trusted God. He trusted him. Didn't believe he existed. You already knew that. He trusted him. So here's a question for you, because this is about you and me, right? Do you, do you trust God? Boy, it's a big question. It is actually the meaning of life, to, to walk through this and understand it. Do you really trust God? You know, trust must be earned and it must be learned. 
And trust, what I say to you, requires you and I to take a risk. Listen, say you ask one of your friends to watch your kids after school. Hey, would you mind picking up my kids from school? I've got a doctor's appointment. Right? You're asking, you're putting your trust in somebody, but putting your trust in a person requires you to take a risk because that person might not do it. Well, guess what? Trusting in a person, trusting in a child, trusting in anything including God, requires risk. Because the fact of the matter is, when you trust in somebody, you are saying, I hope they'll do what I need them to do. The thing is, what you learn experientially as you do it, is that God always, always, always keeps his word. He just wants you and I, friends, to learn it. And the only way you learn it is by doing it, to trust him. I've been thinking about this, you know, maybe, maybe this is just me, and by the way, whenever I say that, that's a rhetorical point. <laughs> maybe it's just me, but does it seem to you like when you're, when you're struggling, that like God always takes you like right to the edge? Is it just me? It's not just me. Did you ever notice that whenever you're wrestling with a question, you're worried about something, and you're like, man, Lord, I need an answer quick, and all you get to dial tone, kind of like Job or all sorts of people in Scripture, Jesus himself, that God always waits till the last minute. He keeps you. He always wants you to go to the mat. He waits until the last minute. You know, it's frustrating. If you're like me and you're a type A control guy, a fixer, it's really frustrating to me. But you know, you pray, you ask for direction, you ask the Lord to help you, and then nothing happens. But you know something, friends, that's kind of the point. Because as I get older, and I learn more and more how God works in my life and the lives of those under my pastoral care, that that delay is for my own sake because that delay teaches me to be patient and it shows me experientially that he will come through. God always keeps his word. I know that here. But it's only in the delay, it's only in the whoa of life that you actually learn it here experientially. Why? Because trust requires you to risk. Trust is earned and trust is learned. And sometimes it is awfully painful. And I want you to remember this. If you take one takeaway from today, it's simply this. That when you're struggling, when you're wrestling, God is actually teaching you to trust him. And that leads me to my second point, the faith of Abraham, the only thing going for this guy, the only thing going for Abraham is that he trusted God, period. And we see this over the next several weeks. Second point I want you to see here is the cynicism of Sarah. This is kind of a cool, stay with me here. Sarah is the wife of Abraham, and it's not just Abraham, friends. It's not just Abe who's learning to trust God. It's also Sarah, his wife. You know, just these three men show up, and you don't know this from the text, but it's God, it's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't, Abraham doesn't know that at first. He's just conversing with these men, thinking that they are visitors, that they have wandered into his camp, and he's going he's gonna to feed them because that's what you did as an ancient Near Eastern uh, Bedouin, essentially, is hospitality was the chiefest of the virtues. And so these three men roll in, and he's having a conversation with them until, if you look in your in your bulletin, you'll see in verse 10 that God, it says, the Lord said to Abraham, and that word Lord there is in small caps. If you look at it, you'll see it. That word Lord there is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. It's God's name. Point being, when these three men show up, who is standing there? Abraham is called to make lunch for the Trinity. Actually, he makes Sarah do it, but the point is, 
The point is, again, he's like, right? It's the same thing over and over. But the point is, the Trinity shows up, and, they say, and this God says to Abraham, eventually, Abraham realizes it's the Lord. And he says, you know, I'm going to come back in a year's time. I'm going to come back in a year's time. And Sarah is going to have a son. Now, not only is Sarah unable to have children from the beginning, as we pointed out with that whole Hagar incident, She's now 90 years old. Abraham's no spring chicken either. But God says, when I return in a year's time, she, Sarah, will have a son. And what does Sarah do? Listen to this. Sarah laughs. And friends, it's not a woo-hoo! It's a, yeah, right. Sarah has become a cynic. How could she not? Sarah has become a cynic. You know, life sometimes, as we get older particularly, and you get kicked around a little bit, right, and you see how life doesn't always, life is not a box of chocolates, right? You know, you can't seem to catch a break, and eventually you have, and Sarah, this poor woman, is carrying the burden of a husband who's not only uh, a little loose in his morals, but also a guy who's kind of looking out for his own reputation, his own skin. He's not exactly the kind of person that you would want your daughter to get married to or raise your son to be like. This woman carries a burden. She carries a struggle. And man, it's easy to get burned, right? It's easy to get cynical when you've wrestled with life. It's easy to get bitter. You ever notice that's why little kids, little kids aren't cynics. You know why? They haven't learned it yet. They haven't been burned enough. But cynicism is a learned thing, friends. Cynicism is when it's actually the opposite of trust. When people question God's motives, when when you question other people's motives, you become a cynic, and you hear promises from people or from God, in a year's time I'll be back, and you shall have a son, Sarah. Yeah, right. See, Sarah has to learn to trust God, too. So do you, so do I. You know, right now, many of you, and some of you are in the midst of suffering, and if you're not, you will be. Some of you, uh, some of you have, I've said this before, you have to realize one very important thing, friends, that we live in a fallen and broken world. Life is hard. We live in a stressful and broken world, and despite, despite these utopian efforts of these people in Seattle with this little six-block area, if that's even still there, I don't even know, group of non-GMO vegan millennials trying to make a utopian subculture, yeah, okay. Give it a shot. It won't work. Because you know what? Perfection, this side of heaven, is not possible. But, but you see, we are all called not to be cynics, not to be angry, not to be bitter. But yeah, we are called instead to trust God. And like Sarah and Abraham, we learn it, man. At least I do, the hard way. Let me challenge you this morning, friends to guard your hearts. Be aware of this cynicism. It, our culture is full of this right now. I mean, it's really, is this me? Or does it seem a little bit like we're kind of on edge here, right? People are just doubting everything, questioning everything, angry about everything. Guard your heart about becoming cynical and bitter because that's an awfully hard shell through which God will have to crack. Cynicism creates a shell around you and most dangerously, cynicism prevents you from trusting God, seeing God's blessing. It makes you bitter. Be careful. God is a God of promises, friends, and he's faithful, and he knows what he's doing, ironically. So we see Abraham's trust in God, right? The only thing he's got. We see Sarah's cynicism. Yeah, right. A kid? Sure. All right, I'll wait. 
right? And then finally we see, this is great, a last laugh. So the year rolls on, right? The, the Trinity leaves. Abraham and Sarah, I guess, reconcile enough that they're able to try, <laughs> you might say. And they are able to reconcile enough to at least give it a whirl. And Sarah, and it, Sarah conceives. And this is not, you know, God's child. It's Abraham's son. She conceives and she delivers a son. And a year later, the Lord, this is in Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? She's learning to trust him. And in verse 6, I love this. Look at it again. In verse 6, it says, chapter 21, verse 6, it says, God, God has made laughter for me. Only this time, it's not a laughter of cynicism and, yeah, right. It's a laughter of joy, the joy of a changed heart. The joy of a person who sees, oh, he's, he's actually done what he said he would do. A joy of a heart who is learning to trust God. Here's the funny, here's the laugh. Abraham names the, names the boy Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going to hear about these guys for the next several weeks. Abraham names him Isaac. And you know what the name Isaac means? He laughs. But the he who's laughing isn't Isaac. And the he who's laughing isn't Abraham. The he who gets the last laugh, you see, is God. And it's not a laugh of I told you so, but a laugh of joy of a God who sees a person who's learned and learning to trust him. It's not a laugh of, of condemnation, but rather it's a laugh of a God who created you and loves you and wants the best for you. And the only way that works is if you trust him. Friends, that is the Christian walk. That is the Christian walk, God's laughter, not at us, but with us. That our Father is joyful when we learn to trust him, just like a parent is joyful when one of your children trusts you. And when we listen to him, he turns our cynicism and our doubt into victory and into trust and into joy. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the example of Abraham and Sarah, two sinful, broken people just like us who struggle with the same questions that we do today. Father, prevent us from becoming cynical. Help to turn our cynicism into joy, our doubt into trust. Give us a trusting and victorious faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.